0: Translated by Matthew Barton, 16 Lectures. Entitled, The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. This is Lecture 4. Entitled, The Connection of the Bodies of the Human Being with Humanity's Evolution and Human Biography, The Son of God and Son of Man. Given in Munich on the 11th of February, 1911. As we study spiritual science, we first acquaint ourselves with what we call the human being's different levels or aspects, distinguishing the physical body, etheric body, astral body, capital I, and so forth. To many it might seem that by doing so, by ascertaining that we are constituted of these different bodies, we have already to some degree encompassed the whole of human nature. Many do indeed think that they possess the most intrinsic and essential knowledge about the human being once they know this, once they can list these various aspects or levels, as well as knowing how each of these behaves as it passes through diverse incarnations. On the one hand, while it is necessary for us to take these bodies as our point of departure, we must recognize that this is really still only a first and very preliminary step. You see, it is not a matter only of us being constituted of these seven or nine aspects, but the key thing is how the different levels interrelate, how each stands in relation to the other. In fact, this interrelationship does not remain constant for all human beings and in all eras, but varies Above all, this interrelationship of the human bodies changes over the long course of human evolution. If we look back to humanity of four or five thousand years ago, these bodies were connected to each other in a way quite different from today. And in future, they will become very differently related once again. The nature of this union, the interplay and interrelationship of the different levels of our being alters as time goes by. Our continual sequence of reincarnations gains significance by virtue of the fact that as we pass through our own individual evolution, from incarnation to incarnation, in the course of the whole of the earth's evolution, this complex of physical body, etheric body, and astral body evolves in its interrelationships. And therefore, with every new incarnation we encounter, if you like, a new configuration. Because of this, by virtue of this encounter with a repeatedly new configuration of our bodies, we keep having new experiences. What I mean can be illustrated by considering an ancient point in time with our own era. If we looked back to the 5th and 4th millennium B.C., to Egyptian culture, and studied the people of those times, we would find a far looser relationship between physical body, etheric body, and astral body than is the case today. In those ancient times, astral and etheric bodies were more tenuously bound to the physical body than today. That is precisely the tendency of our current evolution, astral and etheric bodies seek to unite ever more closely and firmly with the human physical body. This is very significant. As evolution advances toward the future, astral and etheric bodies are tending to become ever more firmly chained to the physical body, and in consequence the human soul no longer has the same kind of influence over our physical body as it did in ancient times. In those eras, the astral and etheric bodies were freer, and the laws of the physical body did not inform them so vigorously as they do nowadays. In olden times, when a person entertained a feeling or an idea, the power of this feeling or idea swiftly transplanted itself into the astral and etheric body, and, since people at that time had mastery over their etheric and astral body, their soul could in turn hold sway over the physical body. This capacity of the soul to rule the physical body is continually waning nowadays as the astral and etheric body become ever more integrated with and into the physical body. But this also has another consequence. It means that over the course of the ages, our natural constitution becomes ever less available to the powers and potencies that work down upon us from the world of spirit. In ancient times, therefore, we had what can be called quote, natural inspiration and imagination, an ancient clairvoyance, since the etheric and astral bodies were freer then. Into this free astral and etheric body streamed the powers of the hierarchies, Working into these bodies. Now, by contrast, in the process of humanity's development, the physical body sunders etheric and astral body from our intrinsic interiority, lays claim to them, and in consequence, the direct influence of worlds of spirit grows ever weaker, can gain ever less purchase upon the human being's etheric and astral bodies. We can trace this in the human being's outward form. If we were to go a very long way back to the humanity, say, of ancient Egypt, we would find that a passion or drive at work in the soul in those days worked on into the astral and etheric body, which in turn impressed these drives and passions into the physical body. For this reason, we would also find that in very ancient times of Egyptian culture, but altogether in eras of ancient culture, the external human form was a kind of imprint of the soul. In those days you could read from a person's countenance their physiognomy, what lived in their soul. There was a full accord, one might say, between outer physical appearance and the soul. Then came the Greco-Roman era, these remarkable people, the Greeks, in the middle of post-Atlantean times. In them was a kind of balance, in which, in general, the powers of the world of spirit flowed into the soul and came to expression in corporeality. This gave the Greeks their remarkable harmony between outward physicality, the beauty of their outward corporeality, and the beauty of their soul. This Loveliness of soul, since it was free of the physical body, was in consequence capable of opening upward toward the hierarchies. There was an influx of the powers of the hierarchies coming to expression in the physical body, and therefore the whole physical body of an ancient Greek became an expression of the beauty of his soul. Thus we find that to a great degree a transpersonal quality came to expression in the human body in the Greek era, a universal human quality. In the future, and this is the important thing which we now inscribe in our souls, this will change radically. In future, the human physical body will assert itself more forcefully, will chain astral and etheric bodies to itself, Only if we consciously approach the world of spirit, absorbing ideas, concepts, and feelings from it, as we are now beginning to do in the spiritual movement, can we then ourselves develop the powerful forces that formerly flowed into the physical and etheric body from the hierarchies. As the future approaches... We can only retain mastery of our physical body by consciously drawing strong powers from the spiritual world that can overcome the resistant energies of the etheric body, bound up as this is so closely with the physical body. We can put it like this. In ancient, pre-Christian times, human beings were endowed with a natural capacity to act upon their physical body. In future, people will only have this capacity if they themselves do something to ensure it. But in consequence, a different and distinction will increasingly become apparent within humanity between those who reject spiritual teachings and insights and those who gladly, willingly and instinctively approach such knowledge. As we know, the latter group, as yet, remains small. But this division will occur between those who reject the spiritual and despise it and those who willingly embrace spiritual movements, initially through a certain kind of instinct. This will become apparent in the features of those who resist spirituality. They will have no power over their gestures, their physical exterior it will become clear that their physical aspect is stronger than they are themselves. By contrast, it will be evident that those who embrace spiritual teachings will acquire strength to overcome the resistance of their physical body. In their outward form and development, human beings will in future display very different characteristics from those of ancient times. Returning once more to the ancient world, we can say that in the Egypt of the fifth or fourth millennium BC, children at birth did not yet appear properly human. They looked as if an angel had landed, as if the child had received its soft bodily forms from the world of spirit, as the direct expressions of the spiritual within the physical. As these children grew, they became ever more human in appearance. They developed downward into humanity. In the Greeks we find a great similarity between people at a younger and older age. Already in early infancy, one could observe the imprint of a universally human quality which continued as the child grew. For this reason it is right to see the Greeks as a kind of childlike people. In future it will become ever more apparent that at birth, children and especially the most significant individuals will be ugly, truly ugly, compared to the ideal of Greek beauty. But the more a person acquaints themselves with spiritual ideas, the more their form and figure will acquire a characteristic appearance. What was at first vague and undefined or even ugly in the child will transform as they become acquainted with spiritual ideas. It will be noticeable how a person's features express ideas and concepts drawn from the world of spirit. This will increasingly grow to be the case. What manifests in the outward features of humanity sometimes appears in a compressed form in art. It is true to say that the material for the humanity that is to advance toward the future is, as it were, drawn from the European peoples, whereas the material for a humanity that once had the old kind of sway over the physical body arose in southern lands. In art, too, in Greek art, we find an expression of universal human beauty. Greek sculptors endowed even the figures of their gods with the expression of human beauty, and this continued right up to the Renaissance of Southern Europe. If you compare a Madonna by Raphael to one painted in Northern Lands, you can see that art prefigures what is actually to come. Here you have the more characteristic form, a predominance of characteristic qualities. In the echoes of Greek art, Beauty appears as a self-sustaining quality. A strong inwardness of soul is what humanity will require in the near future. We are advancing toward such an era, and this very fact must be connected with another, that these different bodies of the human being possess a different interrelationship at different eras of evolution. In the past, they were more loosely connected, but now the lower aspects are becoming ever more closely bound up with one another. Now various things are connected with this fact, and in our time they can become a very tangible reality for an attentive observer of life. For instance, the inability of some people to form concepts that correspond with the world's realities. Today there are numerous people whose ideas have been so firmly drilled into them that they become completely unable to take up new ideas later on. What causes this? The elasticity of an etheric body that is less firmly connected with the physical body enables it always to absorb new ideas. An etheric body strongly bound up with the physical, on the other hand, first acquires a sum of concepts, and then the physical body reciprocally imposes upon the etheric body the definite form it has thereby acquired thus it is that many people in cultured and educated circles in later life can no longer alter what they have inscribed in their brains their concepts become rigid and inelastic their etheric body can no longer free itself the physical body will not let go of it This tendency can then only be overcome by the strength and penetration of spiritual concepts and ideas. You see, here people have to overcome a cosmic tendency through their own powers. This is, in fact, the human mission, to overcome a cosmic tendency by our own efforts. A comparison can help clarify what I mean. Imagine a plant pervaded by sap, which renders it fresh and green. Let the plant's sap and moisture stand for the etheric body, and the rest of the plant for the human being's physical body. This human physical body becomes powerful, as I said, by virtue of drawing the etheric body and also the astral body toward it. It gains ascendancy over them. In consequence, the etheric and astral body become weak and powerless, as if moisture were withdrawn from the plant, so that it dries up, gradually becomes woody, and this is due to impoverishment of the powers of the etheric and astral body. Similarly, a brain that becomes, in quotes, woody, can absorb only a few concepts, since it wishes to stick with the ones it already has we must enliven our astral body and our etheric body by taking up spiritual ideas and concepts. And so we see that the spiritual movement of today contains a necessity intrinsic to the future of our mission as human beings, something as necessary as anything that has affected the human race without our human involvement. However, people will long vociferously dismiss such truths, though to do so will not do any good. People will come to see from developments in culture that come increasingly to the fore in the near future that things are as I describe them. Realities will demonstrate this to them. Now, this altering interrelationship of the bodies or aspects of the human being is not only a factor that concerns all human evolution, but it also affects each single human life. The relationship between etheric body, astral body, and I, capital, is certainly not the same in infancy as it is in old age. This relationship changes in each individual, as it does through evolution. The first three years of a child's life must be regarded as very important. Basically, a person is quite different then from how they will be later on. We know that these first three years are sharply separated from the rest of a person's life by two facts. One is that we only learn to say I to ourselves at the end of this period, to know ourselves as an I. The other is that when we look back on our life later, we cannot remember further back than this point which separates early infancy from the rest of our life. Normally, at any rate, people do not remember what precedes this point in time. In certain respects we are quite different beings before it. And even if modern psychologists say the most inane things nowadays, we must hold fast to this fact, that really we only come to conscious awareness of our I-nature after this period of three years has elapsed. Today we even have books on psychology that state children learn to think before they learn to speak. Such nonsense, as found in popular psychology manuals, is possible only in an age when psychologists working in some official capacity are regarded as serious scientists. One of the most important facts they overlook is this distinction between early infancy and the rest of a person's life. We can even say that a person is quite different in nature in the first three years than after this period. Only later does the human eye appear, that principle to which everything else is related. No one should claim, though, that this I was inactive beforehand. Naturally, it was not. It does not come to birth only in the child's third year, it was there already, but it had a task different from engaging in the activity of consciousness. What task did it have then? It is the most important spiritual factor in developing the child's three sheaths, the astral body via the etheric body and the physical body. The brain's physical sheath is continually transformed and here we see the eye continually at work. This cannot become conscious because its task at this time is a different one. It has to shape the instrument of consciousness. The principle that later comes to our awareness works upon our physical brain in the first three years of life. In a sense, this only represents a change in the task of the eye. First, it works upon us, and then within us. It is really a sculptor initially, this eye, and what it accomplishes in shaping this physical brain of ours is inexpressible. The eye is a mighty artist. But who gives it the powers it possesses? It possesses this power because basically the forces of the next higher hierarchy, that of the angels, stream into it during the first three years of life. This is not a metaphor, but a reality. Our angel, that is a being of the next higher hierarchy, does actually work in us through the eye. This angelic being works in the eye and through the eye upon the human being, forming and shaping us. It is as if we possessed the whole stream of spiritual life, as if we flowed upward to the higher hierarchies where the powers of these hierarchies poured into us. But the moment we learn to say I, it is as if something in us is separated from these powers, as if we are now called upon to do something that the angels previously did for us. Thus in infancy we have something that actually appears as a last echo of what to some degree persisted throughout a person's life in the first post-Atlantean period. For almost the whole of their life, or at least for the first half of it, people directly after the great Atlantean catastrophe were as infants are today. We can see this clearly in early Indian culture. The great teachers of the Indian people, the Holy Rishis, were the most childlike of people in early Indian culture. I have often spoken of them. Conceiving of them in terms of a modern scholar would be very mistaken. If you met them today, you would not think very much of them. You would think they were simple and childlike, naive peasants. Nowadays, perhaps, the childlike nature of the Rishis is nowhere to be found any longer. But in their era, an influx of inspiration streamed through them, and they uttered things that were mysteries of the higher worlds. And this was because they really never spoke the word I throughout their lives, at least in the way people do today. They never said I. They were not children as such, therefore— because a child's thinking is as yet primitive. But into this same form of soul life flowed the greatest treasures of wisdom. It was as if a child in their first three years of life were to utter the greatest wisdom. Children do not utter wisdom in this way, or at least not in the sense understood by a portion of humanity. But it is also true to say, as I have often remarked, but the wisest person can perhaps learn something from the child and in fact someone who can see into worlds of spirit observing a child before them with the current that ascends from this child into the spiritual world has, and forgive me the mundane comparison something like a telephone line to the worlds of spirit. Worlds of spirit speak through the child it is just that people are unaware of this. The wisest can learn most from children. The child does not utter wisdom as such, but the angel does so through the child. Another question is this. If the infant's eye is not merely their fourth aspect or level, but at the same time the lowest aspect of an angel, how does their whole constitution at this point relate to their subsequent life? At this period of childhood, you see, we could categorize the child's eye as the lowest aspect of the angel. The bodily sheaths or aspects at this period interrelate in a quite different way from how they do later on. And so we must ask how this changes in the course of life, what occurs later. The living stream is, as it were, cut off and we lose our living connection with the spiritual world. Thus, in these earliest years, we can observe most keenly the powers a person brings with them from their previous incarnations. At this period, the spiritual core of a person is working most intensely to configure and shape the body so as to fit it for this incarnation. How does our later ordinary consciousness relate to this? A person today no longer has the etheric body and its relationship to the physical body, as this existed in the Holy Rishis. Throughout the life of such a person, the etheric and astral body retained an inherited configuration, enabling the eye to sculpt and model the human being's outer body. Nowadays, at birth already, we inherit a physical body that is so dense and exacting that the eye can only perform a small part of the work that it once performed. Our physical body is no longer fit material for what we are in our first three years. We inherit the physical body we need for our later life, but it is not suited for raising our gaze to the worlds of spirit. The child does not know what is streaming down, and those around him certainly do not, but the physical body has changed, has become more dense and dry. We are born with a soul which in the first three years of life still reaches aloft into worlds of spirit. Yet we are born with a body destined to develop the consciousness in which the I lives throughout the rest of our life. If we did not have this dense physical body, we would remain childlike in this current cycle of human evolution. But because we do have it, we cannot become fully aware of how we live in communion with the spiritual world during our first three years. What is needed now in human evolution? What is the only sound and healthy thing? We can most easily express this healthy principle if we use two terms from olden times for the two beings within us. The one is our being of soul and spirit in the first three years of childhood. This is no longer properly adapted to our outward nature and cannot develop I-consciousness. In olden times, people used the phrase son of God for this being. By contrast, the being that nowadays has its physical body such that I-consciousness can dwell within it was called the son of man. And thus, The Son of God lives within the Son of Man. In today's conditions, the Son of God can no longer become conscious in the Son of Man, but must first be choked off, cut off, if modern eye consciousness is to develop. But our human task is to reshape, to overcome the Son of Man, the outward sheaths, through conscious assimilation of the spiritual world, to gain mastery of them in such a way that gradually the Son of Man will become entirely pervaded once more by the Son of God. By the time the earth reaches the end of its evolution, we must have rendered conscious what we cannot any more render conscious from childhood onward. We must have completely pervaded our Son of Man with our divine aspect. What is it that we must fully imbue and infuse? What must pour itself into all parts of the physical, etheric, and astral body so that we completely pervade our whole Son of Man with the whole Son of God? What lives in the first three years of childhood must, now fully conscious and pervaded by the eye, infuse and inform our whole human being. Let us assume that a being were to appear before us as an ideal exemplar of what we need to become, to evolve into. What must be fulfilled in such a being? The soul dwelling in this being is of no use, for it cannot pervade the outer sheaths. An ordinary person at the present stage of evolution would not be able to realize the human earthly ideal, would not be able to embody it, we would have to tear out the soul and, as it were, have it standing there before us, tear out the soul as it is in the Son of Man and implant into our being the nature of the soul in the first three years, but now fully imbued with eye There is no other way to conjure before us an ideal of earthly evolution than to picture someone whose soul we tear out and then into whom we implant a soul such as that of the first three years, a childlike soul, yet one that possesses full-eye consciousness. That is what we would need to implant. But how long would such a soul endure existing in a physical human life on earth? The physical body can only bear such a soul living within it for three years, and then it must subdue it. In other words, in such a person, the physical body would shatter after three years. The whole karma of the earth would have to be such that the physical body shatters after three years. For in a person of today, what lives for the first three years is subdued. Were it to persist, it would instead have to subdue and burst the physical body asunder. And so an ideal of the human earthly mission would only be fulfilled if the human being's physical body, etheric body and astral body remained as they were. Ordinary soul nature were torn from it and the soul nature of our first three years possessed of full eye consciousness were implanted in its place. Then the soul would burst the human body asunder. But during these three years it would offer an exemplary picture of what the human being can attain. This is the Christ ideal. At what occurred at the Jordan, baptism is the reality of what has been described. What we must understand to be the human ideal was actually presented to her earth, earthly humanity. It cannot be otherwise. The ideal we envisage happened. At the Jordan baptism, the soul under whose sway we are during the first three years of childhood but now fully pervaded by the human eye, in full upward connection with the world of spirit, was implanted into a human body whose previous soul had departed. And after three years, this soul from worlds of spirit burst the bodies asunder. In our first three years of childhood, therefore, we have a weak image before us, as it were an entirely revealed picture, of the Christ being who lived on earth in the body of Jesus for three years. And if we try to develop within us a human being that is like the young child's soul, but fully imbued with all the content of the spiritual world, then we can form a picture of that I-hood, that Christ being of whom Paul speaks when he urged upon us the thought of, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote the child soul, filled with i Then we become able to pervade our Son of Man with our Son of God, and will be able to fulfill our earthly ideal, to overcome all outer nature and rediscover our connection with the spiritual world. And how should we grow to be? In religious testaments... Every saying has multiple meanings. We must become like little children if we wish to look out into the heavenly realms yet possess also the full maturity of the eye. This is the prospect awaiting us by the time the earth has fulfilled its mission. We can feel very curiously moved if we realize how, on the one hand, our physical body is facing a process of increasing desiccation while on the other the process of spiritualization is being initiated and will in future overcome the part of us that grows arid. Out of worlds of spirit, inner life must become so strong that resistant outwardness conforms to its character. Then, as human beings, we will be in harmony with our earthly evolution. Spiritual science teaches us that the earth has long since passed the point when the mineral realm, which forms our soil from granite through gneiss from slate through to fertile soil, retains its vigorous ascendant powers. Everything is, rather, involved in a continual process of degeneration. We do not walk about on a ground that is being newly formed, but since the earth has passed the midpoint of its evolution, upon a ground that is already decaying, is already breaking down. Our own development is in full accord with the development of our planet. We possess a physical body that is slowly growing arid, and which we are overcoming. But in the ground beneath us too we have something involved in decline, and the forming of valleys and mountains is now a matter of erosion of the earth's crust. Spiritual science teaches us that we dwell upon a declining earth. If you climb a mountain, you must recognize that it is composed of broken and fragmented boulders, and that these processes of erosion are not ones of regeneration. Since mid-Atlantean times, we have passed the midpoint of earth's evolution. Since then, we have been living on an earth destroyed, which will eventually fall away from us as a corpse. This is one of the finest examples of the full accord between spiritual science and the mainstream science of today. You see, anthroposophists should learn to distinguish between real science and everything that poses as science in countless popular media, but which in fact is nothing but a sum of preconceptions and such like. If you go to the real source of each scientific discipline, you will discover that spiritual insights are in full accord with science. This is one of the finest examples. There is no more rigorous geologist than Edward Seuss, and it is no doubt correct, as another geologist has said, that his work, titled The Face of the Earth, recounts the Earth's geological epic. Readers aside, it's possible that the name is Edward Seuss, S-U-E-S-S. and of readers aside. That's how I will pronounce it. But Seuss proceeded very carefully and rigorously. This monumental work of his gives us everything we can assert about geology today, without succumbing to preconceived theories. Unlike, say, Buch or Humboldt, who investigated phenomena with predetermined ideas in mind, Seuss keeps to the facts. And there is a very interesting thing, he says, about the forming of the earth, based on his careful collation of facts. In the development of the earth and the soil, he ascertains precisely what spiritual science ascertains, though he draws his conclusions from purely physical realities and knows nothing about spiritual science. He says that valleys formed when certain forces caused rock and stone to collapse, giving rise to depressions, leaving higher ground standing, and so forth. Everything came about through collapse, overthrow, and folding over, in which destructive forces were at play. I'd like to read you a passage from his great work, and you will see that it accords with spiritual insights. He writes this, We are witnessing the collapse of the planet. It did, of course, begin a long time ago, and since the human race has not yet been here long, we remain confident and cheerful. The traces of this collapse are apparent not only in the high mountains. massifs have in some cases sunk by many thousands of feet, and the existence of fractures is shown not by the slightest difference in elevation on the surface, but by the difference in rock types, or is brought to light by deep mining. Time has smoothed and leveled everything. In Bohemia, in Pfalz, in Belgium, in Pennsylvania... In numerous places on the earth, the plow draws its furrows over the mightiest geological breaks. Steiner again. I say this only to show you how our planet Earth displays the same process of desiccation and decline as the physical body. Those today who establish world views do not look to real science. It takes much effort even to study the whole of this mighty work of Edward Seuss. And doing so would be of no use without acquainting oneself with all modern geological knowledge in so far as it supports and leads to such a book. If we go to the real sources of knowledge and science, we invariably find absolutely reliable facts. And then, on the other hand, we have a spiritual science which tells us for instance, about the course of Earth's evolution, that once upon a time, before organisms existed, the Earth was not in some imaginary state where granite was fluid fire, but where the Earth was pervaded by the same kind of activity as, for example, a person is when he thinks. This process of disintegration was initiated and gave rise to what we can describe as follows. From the earth organism, like rain, fell chemical substances that this organism now no longer contains, for instance, the substance of which granite consists. These substances filtered down, and basically these were the processes of destruction, which combined with the chemism of the earth, made it possible for granite to emerge as the earth's solid foundation. A process of disintegration began at this time, and what exists today must be its consequence. Our mineral processes are the consequences of that disintegrative process which continues apace. What must real science teach us? That really, the processes exist that must inevitably exist. This is apparent everywhere in true science. Nowhere does true science contradict the tenets of spiritual science. It continually confirms them. This confirmation extends likewise to reincarnation and karma. But we must eventually get beyond all the theories, preconceptions and such like that exist here. We must always resort to facts, not confused hypotheses, such as assumptions made by theoretical geologists about the state of the earth when granite formed, let alone philosophical theories today about the world around us, which are more or less devoid of all spirituality. We should not let ourselves be over-impressed by those who tell us, for instance, that human individuation, which we see as founded on reincarnation and karma, originates in the, quote, endlessness of spiritual evolution, close quote. A person may be world-famous, and teach that human individuation and development originate in the endlessness of spiritual evolution. But this, however much it is promulgated as official philosophy and associated with the grand name of Wundt, is no more than artificial thunder. Here, in fact, we stand at the boundary between two cultural worlds. And we must be aware of this. One is real science which insofar as it is founded on actual facts, continually confirms spiritual science, while the other consists only of diverse philosophical theories, hypotheses, and all sorts of ingenious inventions about what may underlie outer processes. True spiritual science must distinguish itself clearly from the latter. And then we will also increasingly recognize how what we learn through spiritual insights This configuration of the human being and the interrelationships between these bodily sheaths and the diverse eras of humanity's evolution and also of each individual's evolution point us to profound secrets of the world. A true understanding of the first three years of childhood, for example, offers us the first level of approach to recognizing the truth of the mystery of Golgotha and to understanding the biblical phrase, Unless ye become as little children, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. The End of Lecture 4